0: One of my childhood heroes was someone who I know wasn't real. But as a kid, I went to the movies and I was in awe of a gritty, working-class Italian-American boxer from Philadelphia, the Italian Stallion, Robert Rocky Balboa. And this prize fighter, played by Sylvester Stallone on the big screen in the late 1970s and 1980s, he was one of the cultural icons of the era the first Rocky film. It came out in 1976, America's 200th birthday. And it was awarded the Academy Award for Best Picture, although actually how it won over Taxi Driver or Network doesn't make any sense to me today. But in the mid-1970s, Rocky struck a chord with Americans. And on the one hand, why not? It's the classic story of a down on his luck, semi-washed-up pugilist, you know, his boxing career hanging on by a thread. And then Rocky gets his big break. In a publicity stunt, the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. Wow, Wow, what a name. Apollo Creed, he gives this no-name fighter a chance. In America's bicentennial, Rocky Balboa is given the opportunity to fight for the title and seize the American dream. Henry Mancini's iconic Gonna Fly Now. You know, Rocky dedicates himself to training. He, he drinks raw eggs in the morning, which, by the way, every boy my age tried at least once in order to mimic the rock. Rocky Balboa, that is, not that new guy. Rocky goes for long, cold runs in the early mornings. He punches slabs of beef in the slaughterhouse where he sometimes works. He jumps rope. He, he sprints up the steps in front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. If you ever visit the Philadelphia Art Museum, you will see someone at the top of those stairs, breathing heavily, arms in the air, doing his best Rocky Balboa pose. I visited when I was 12 years old and sprinting up those 72 steps is harder than it looks. But here's what I now understand about Rocky. Rocky is not just a sports film. Rocky is a movie about race and American history. You know, sitting in the movie theater in 1976 and watching Rocky, I was pretty young, but, and then watching Rocky II three years later, and then Rocky three, three years after that, I thought I was watching a film about the sports underdog who gets the girl and wins the big fight. But what I now realize about these early Rocky films is they are not realistic depictions of the boxing world or you know, realistic depictions of gritty urban American life. These films are actually a fantasy. The Rocky films are white America's revenge fantasy against Muhammad Ali. And how's that for a punch in the gut? This is American Sport, and I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. This is the story of three white athletes from the 1980s. Larry Bird, Jerry Cooney, and Rocky Balboa. Two boxers and a basketball player. Two real athletes and one movie character who competed in sports that were suddenly being dominated by black Americans. It was because of their minority status in their sports that white Americans rooted for these three figures with uncommon passion and a a heightened ferocity. These athletes were white America's great white hopes. And so the script was flipped. For much of the 20th century, black Americans had looked to black athletes as figures of resistance and deliverance in times of trouble. And now in the 1980s, it was white Americans who were looking to white athletes and investing them with these same hopes. It was a sudden and and stunning and remarkable transition for a full century, the story of fairness in both sports and American society. Now, that story was usually told as the story of the black athlete. Think uh, Jackie Robinson, for example, a, a black athlete in the white world of sport. But now, in a sign of different times, It was all about white athletes in the black world of sport. It was now white Americans who were making the claim that they were being treated unfairly. And the passion with which they rooted for these white athletes was an expression of their frustration. I think our story needs to start with another white American from the era, Ronald Reagan. Reagan is campaigning for the presidency in in 1980, and he's in Philadelphia. And and not big city Philadelphia, home of Rocky Balboa, but small town Philadelphia, Mississippi. Philadelphia, Mississippi is where Ronald Reagan kicked off his campaign for the presidency in 1980. You know, Reagan secured the Republican nomination, and now he was launching his general campaign against Jimmy Carter, a, a campaign I'm sure you know, Reagan is going to win. Ronald Reagan is the second most important president of the 20th century. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is clearly the first, but Reagan is important. Reagan came along in the late 1970s and in the 1980s, and he helped transform the political trajectory of the nation. I mean, that's why we call this time the Reagan era. Reagan's popularity was the result of many things. There was his get tough with the Soviets talk. You know, Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire. And then he put his money where his mouth was and he spent billions building up the American military. This was a military celebrated in the 80s in movies like Top Gun, a movie about sex and fighter planes. She's lost that love and feeling, I have a need for speed, stuff like that. Part of Reagan's allure came from the type of manhood that he presented. You know, Reagan took the oath of office just two weeks before his 70th birthday. But despite his age, he presented a a strong, forceful, decisive, and and masculine persona. And this is an image that was carefully crafted. there, There were photos of Reagan lifting barbells and Reagan working out on the Nautilus machine, throwing footballs in the Oval Office, Reagan riding a horse, Ronald Reagan getting all badass with a chainsaw. These pictures were everywhere especially during the early years of his presidency. But another reason for Reagan's appeal takes us back to Philadelphia, Mississippi, to the Neshoba County Fair where, where Reagan began his campaign. And of all places, why was Ronald Reagan there? Philadelphia, Mississippi is the town where three civil rights activists, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, They were kidnapped and murdered by Klan members in 1964. They had been driving around trying to register black people in Mississippi to vote, and they were stopped by a white sheriff, handed over to the Klan, and they were tortured and killed. And no charges were ever filed by Mississippi authorities. No one was arrested until the federal government came to Mississippi or invaded Mississippi as some described it back then. And and the federal government prosecuted seven men for civil rights violations. People running for president don't do anything by accident. And Ronald Reagan chose Philadelphia, Mississippi for a reason. In 1980, it was a place where many white Mississippians, they, they still resented the intrusion of the FBI and the federal government in their affairs. And so Reagan launched his campaign there with a speech in which he attacked an an over-intrusive federal government. You know, he made states' rights one of his rallying cries. No more big government was the explicit message, but the implicit message to this audience was, no more civil rights. You know, Reagan spoke of the average American, the hardworking American, the, the middle American who was being victimized by civil rights policies like affirmative action. You have been treated unfairly, Reagan told these Americans. You are being treated unfairly, he told them. So vote for Ronald Reagan. It was pretty bold, expressing the idea that white people had been victimized in a town where three civil rights activists had been murdered and the state had done nothing about it. But this idea of unfairness, the idea that white Americans were the victims, this idea had traction. And this wasn't an idea that only resonated in Philadelphia, Mississippi. This was a growing national sentiment. You saw this idea, for example, up in Boston. In Boston, the trigger issue wasn't an overly intrusive FBI. In Boston, the issue was busing. In the 1970s, the federal courts, they were trying to desegregate public schools. The the courts were ordering that black students from segregated schools be bused to white schools in order to achieve or engineer integration. These policies sparked intense and, and sometimes violent opposition. And Boston, with its white Irish Catholic neighborhoods, they were the center of that opposition as buses carrying black students, as they rolled into white neighborhoods. White students and parents, they stood their ground. They resisted. They, they met these buses and they threw rocks, they threw bananas, they yelled racial slurs. They held up signs that read, "Buss them back to Africa. These white Bostonians did not want these black school children coming into their neighborhoods. These were their schools and they wanted the black children kept out. Whites have rights too, they said. I think that is perhaps the most striking aspect of this white backlash movement. The way that the protesters, they adopted the rhetoric of the civil rights movement. You know, one of the anti-busing protesters explained the movement by saying, "It's not that we're anti-black, It's that we are for the white people. And why not? There was no civil rights when our people were coming up. This was the idea. Everyone is getting special treatment and attention except us. We've been left behind. Whites have rights too. And now here comes the sports. And let me provide my meditation on the topic of race and sport in the 1980s. And let me be honest, when someone says what comes next is a meditation, that is often just fancy talk for random and disjointed thoughts, although I think I've got my thoughts together here. Uh, Let's explore how these frustrations, how they carried over into the world of sports in general, and then in the stories of Larry Bird, Jerry Cooney, and Rocky Balboa in particular. Let's go back to Boston. In 1979, arriving in Boston, arriving in this city that's seething with racial tension and and white resentment, in walked a white basketball player named Larry Bird, a white player in what was more and more being thought of as black America's sport. Now let's meditate on basketball. Take a look at college and professional basketball in the middle of the 20th century. It had been an almost all white sport. The college game had few black players. At the start of the 1950s, the NBA, it was all white. This was the result of segregation in American culture. It was the result of unequal opportunity in American sports and society. But little by little, American society became more integrated in the 1950s and the 1960s. And and basketball was part of that integration. And by the mid-1960s, most of the NBA stars were African-American. Bill Russell. Bill Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson. The changing racial complexion of college basketball, Boy, it was dramatized in 1966 when Texas Western College, with their all-black starting five, they won the national championship against an all-white Kentucky team, one of the last segregated college teams in the nation. And the sudden rise of black stars in the game of basketball It provoked anxieties among the basketball establishments. In college, college basketball, they abolished the basketball weapon of choice of the black players. They abolished the dunk. From 1967 to 1976, the NCAA banned dunking in college basketball. Do you hear what I'm saying, people? They banned dunking. This would be like banning the home run in baseball. Why did they do it? Well, they did it to neuter the black players. In the NBA, they called it the hidden fear. NBA executives, they were worried. Would white fans come to the arena and pay money to see a game suddenly dominated by black players? Now, in the NBA, they didn't ban the dunk. They weren't total lunatics, but the league did grasp on to the game's remaining white players. They promoted the hell out of these white players. They made Jerry West, a white player, the logo of the NBA. I mean, literally to this day, his silhouette is the league's emblem. Teams like the New York Knicks, they dramatically overpaid for white players. In the Knicks case, a white player named Bill Bradley. Bradley was unique, he had gone to Princeton, he was a Rhodes Scholar, and the Knicks badly wanted him to appeal to their white Ivy League educated fans. So they gave Bill Bradley a massive contract and it was with envy that his teammates called him Dollar Bill. TV executives tried to promote Bill Walton, the white center of the Portland Trail Blazers. You know, Walton led the Blazers to the NBA title in 1977 And this was the year the NBA had their highest TV ratings in that decade. But white Americans never really latched on to Bill Walton because of his politics. He was an opponent of the war in Vietnam. He grew a beard and wore his red hair long. He was a vegetarian, which was considered really weird in the 1970s. And then he kept getting hurt. Bill Walton had nagging foot injuries that kept him out of the league, and white Americans weren't investing too much hope in a long-haired hippie with bad feet. Actually, the basketball player that thrilled white Americans the most in the 1970s was a guy named Pistol Pete Maravich, a, a brilliant, flashy-as-all-get-out white player from LSU. The pistol averaged 44 points a game in college. 44! 44! And he did it with a flair and a style that prompted reporters to refer to him as a white globetrotter. Though I think it's a better analogy to call him basketball's Elvis. Pistol Pete was a white Southerner who took a style of play associated with the black players and he sold it to white audiences. You know, where did Pistol Pete play in the NBA? He, he played the bulk of his career in the Deep South, he played for the Atlanta Hawks and then the New Orleans Jazz. And this was not an accident. It was not a coincidence. Both franchises traded away draft picks and great black players in order to have a piece of the pistol. They gutted their teams to get Maravich because they thought that Pistol Pete would pack in the white fans. Man, they loved the pistol down in New Orleans, especially. He was openly, and I mean openly, celebrated, not just as a great white player, He was the white guy who was besting the black players in what was now thought of as their game. But like Bill Walton, the Pistols career, it was hampered by injuries. No white basketball player, however, ever meant more to his city than Larry Bird meant to Boston. In many ways, the Boston Celtics were pioneers of racial equality in in the NBA. The Celtics, they were the first NBA team to draft a black player. They were the first NBA team to have an all-black starting five. Bill Russell of the Celtics was the NBA's first black head coach. But one thing that is so remarkable about the Celtics in the 60s and the 70s is how unenthusiastic they were in Boston for that team. You know, even during the Bill Russell dynasty, when the Celtics won 11 titles in 13 years... Even during these glory years, attendance at the Boston Garden was half of capacity. They didn't even sell out NBA Finals games. And by contrast, the Boston Bruins, the city's hockey team, usually all white players, they sold out every night. Why were the fans not at the Celtics games? Well, in the mid 1960s, the Celtics asked this question. They they did a survey and they asked Bostonians why they weren't attending their games. And over 50% who responded to that survey, they said they were not attending games because there were too many black players on the Celtics. And then came Larry Bird. Larry Bird is going to be the idol of white Bostonians. He's the hero of those Bostonians who felt like their working class concerns were being ignored by the government. And it's not just white people from Boston. I mean, Byrd was the idol of white Americans from all over the country who felt this way. Though, you know, adding Boston pride in his cultural meaning is especially intense in Beantown. But Byrd fit the model of the white working class hero or the, the middle American that politicians like Ronald Reagan were referencing in this era. Hard-working, you know, so-called ordinary Americans who suddenly felt as if their backs were against the wall, like all those people down in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Bird was from a small Midwestern town, French Lick, Indiana, population 2,000. He played college ball for Indiana State and he almost led the Sycamores to the NCAA title. He lost to Magic Johnson and the Michigan State Spartans in the title game. And I'll say more about Magic in just a moment. And then Larry Bird, the hick from French Lick, as some people like to call him, he was off to the NBA in the Boston Celtics. The Celtics had drafted Larry Bird the year before, actually. They they were willing to draft him and wait while he played his senior year to get him. Those who knew the racial politics of Boston, they thought it was no coincidence that the Celtics would be willing to wait a whole year to get a great white player. But then this white player arrived, and he immediately turned the Celtics into winners. And the turnaround was remarkable. The Celtics won 29 games the year before without Bird. Larry Bird arrives, and they win 61. Like Magic Johnson, who went to the Lakers, Larry Bird was not an out-of-this-world athlete, but he had a package of skills that made him a superstar. He was a tremendous shooter, passer, and ball handler. He had great court vision and timing. I mean, he was a vicious competitor and trash talker. Larry Bird was an assassin. And so was Magic Johnson, by the way, the player Bird was constantly compared to. I mean, Magic just steamrolled you to death. When he had the ball, it was like he was running downhill. But here's the difference. Magic was a black athlete in a black man's game. Larry Bird, he was the outlier a white man excelling in that black game. And so Larry Bird was the perfect sports hero for white Americans who felt like they were being ignored and and looked down upon, for those who felt like black Americans were gaining at their expense. You know, Magic and Bird were so similar. They were about the same size. They had unparalleled court vision. They demanded everything from their teammates. They were basketball geniuses, both of them. But because of the color of their skin, they were constantly being described as opposites, as as racial antagonists. But this narrative worked. The Larry Bird-Magic Johnson rivalry, the, the rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers, it was both great basketball and compelling 1980s racial drama. And this racial drama, it fueled the renaissance of the NBA. The hidden fear of NBA executives in the 1960s and the 1970s, the fear was that their league was too black. But now here in the 80s, Well, a sports league that can be fueled by white versus black competitions. Well, that sells in American sports. Race-based rivalries in sports, they intrigue, they agitate, they excite Americans. You cannot convince me that race was not one of, if not the chief factor here. If Larry Bird had been African-American, it would not have been the same many Americans would not have cared, and they would not have tuned in. And then as the 1980s progressed, with the Celtics, racially speaking, they became even more and more of an outlier in the league. They became whiter. By the mid-1980s, in a league that was now almost 80% black, the Celtics, they were the whitest team out there by far. Their 1986 team was a powerhouse. But it also had a roster that was two-thirds white. And once again, knowing what people knew about Boston and busing, many thought that the Celtics' whiteness was intentional. I cannot think of Larry Bird and the 1986 Boston Celtics without thinking of a sports movie that came out that same year. Hoosiers. Go find a top 10 list of the greatest American sports films, and it's quite likely that on the top of that list, or at least very close to the top, will be the film Hoosiers. Hoosiers is the story of a small town Indiana high school basketball team that shockingly wins the state championship. And it's based on a true story. When tiny Milan High School, they won the Indiana state championship in 1954. In the film Hoosiers, they're called Hickory High School, an all-white team from an all-white rural high school. Hoosiers was released in 1986, right in the middle of the Reagan era. And I can't help but see this film as a Reagan-era document. This is a film about race. Hoosiers was released in a decade, the 1980s, in which black Americans were dominating basketball. And Hoosiers took Americans on a nostalgia trip. It it took them back to a time when white basketball players were still on top. I actually find the film a little icky for this reason. But here's why I mention it. There's an interesting historical inaccuracy in this film. In the movie Hoosiers, when Hickory High, when they make it to the title game, there they face a team with great black players. And, And at first, Hickory seems intimidated by these better, taller, stronger players, but they challenge themselves to dig deep and they eventually win the big game. But in the real story, the team that Milan High School beat for the title, that team was all white. There were no black players on the other team. So why did the filmmakers make the opponents in the title game black? Well, I think I know why. The filmmakers wanted to suggest that the final was the ultimate David versus Goliath moment. It wasn't just a small town team against a big city team. It was white players going up against black players. Overcoming black players in basketball. The ultimate challenge. the, The victory means more if it comes over black players. That's how I know that this film about the 1950s was made in the 1980s white people in basketball are presented and celebrated as the ultimate underdogs. The sports movies that I grew up watching in the 70s and 80s, they are, they're they're troubling. Which takes me to another sports film from the era and a very interesting confluence of fact and fiction. And I'm gonna make a confession about something in just a moment. Professional basketball was, and it continues to be, one of the great racial dramas in American popular culture. But when it comes to sports, no event excites and attracts and repulses. No sporting event is fueled by the the passions of racial identity, more than a big time boxing match. And in the summer of 1982, there were two big interracial fights. One was on the movie screen, and the other was in real life and took place in a boxing ring in the middle of a casino parking lot in Las Vegas. One of the most revealing and troubling sports spectacles of the 1980s, it took place in the Caesars Palace parking lot in June of 1982, when Larry Holmes, who's black, fought Jerry Cooney, who's white, the heavyweight championship of the world. It turned out to be heavyweight boxing's last big black versus white contest in the 20th century. Larry Holmes, who again is black, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And Holmes was a great heavyweight champion, but, but he was the victim really of just bad timing. He was the heavyweight champion after Muhammad Ali, and so Holmes never got the recognition that Ali did. He just wasn't as charismatic and as interesting as Muhammad Ali. I mean, who was? But Holmes was a skilled boxer. He was a, a big man with fast hands that delivered a hard, heavy punch. And when he fought Jerry Cooney in 1982, his record was 39-0, and undefeated. Cooney, Jerry Cooney, was the challenger. Cooney was white, he was an Irish-American from New York, and he rose to fame for two main reasons. First, like Larry Holmes, Jerry Cooney was a powerful puncher, and he ended many of his fights quickly with knockouts. But the second reason for his fame, and there are just no two ways about this, Jerry Cooney was very popular because he was white. After decades of heavyweight boxing being dominated by black fighters, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, and now Larry Holmes, here was a white possibility. Here was a great white hope. The Holmes-Cooney fight took place in June of 1982, and in a very interesting coincidence, there was a blockbuster movie that summer Rocky 3 And so now let's go back to Rocky. Rocky Balboa is the most famous sports character in American movie history. The, the first two Rocky movies, Rocky and Rocky II. They are films in which a fictional white Italian-American boxer, Rocky Balboa, he fights a brash, talkative, black heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. Rocky is a heavy underdog in the first film, and he loses in a split decision. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but that's what happens. In the first sequel, Rocky II, Rocky wins the big fight when he knocks out Apollo Creed in one of the most implausible boxing scenes ever filmed. These were both very popular movies. The first Rocky won the Academy Award for Best Picture. But as I told you, the Rocky movies are more than just sports movies. These are movies about race and American history. Though Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed are fictional characters, these fighters are clearly supposed to represent real people. Apollo Creed, it's Muhammad Ali. He's brash, he's cocky, he's black. That's who Apollo Creed is supposed to remind us of, uh, the, the, the great but controversial black fighter, Muhammad Ali. Rocky is a combination of fighters. But first and foremost, he's clearly supposed to evoke the memory of Rocky Marciano. I mean, he has the same name. And from the perspective of the 1970s and the 80s, Rocky Marciano was the last white American to be heavyweight champion. Marciano was 49 and 0 over his career. He was the heavyweight champion from 1952 to 1956. And he never lost a fight the only heavyweight champion to ever end his career undefeated. And when Muhammad Ali was dominating the boxing spotlight in the 60s and the 70s, there were always people out there who said, yeah, well, he wouldn't beat Rocky Marciano. (sighs) If only there was a time machine where we could somehow transport Rocky Marciano to the future so he could do battle with Muhammad Ali. Well, that time machine is called Hollywood. And we get that fight, Rocky Marciano versus Muhammad Ali in the first two Rocky movies. And so the way that I read the Rocky movies is this. I said it before. Rocky is white America's revenge fantasy against Muhammad Ali. Rocky Balboa, this working class Italian-American who sounds like and resembles Rocky Marciano, he takes the title and shuts the mouth of the brash black fighter, Apollo Creed, who is actually Muhammad Ali. When Rocky II came out in 1979, the Chicago film critic Roger Ebert, he sat down with the real Muhammad Ali, and they watched the film together. And when the film was over, when the white fighter, Rocky, had defeated the black fighter, the Ali-like Apollo Creed... Here's what Muhammad Ali said about the film. It's both boastful, I mean, it's Muhammad Ali after all, and it's incredibly insightful. Ali said, for the black man to come out superior would be against America's teachings. I have been so great in boxing that they had to create an image like Rocky, a white image on the screen to counteract my image in the ring. America has to have its white images, no matter where it gets them. Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and Rocky. Wow. Uh, Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and Rocky. Great white hopes. All of them. Well, the Larry Holmes-Jerry Cooney fight, it took place just three weeks after the summer premiere of Rocky Three when Rocky Balboa fights an even more brash and super menacing black fighter called Clubber Lang, a role played brilliantly by Mr. T. And here's what happened. Fight promoters, they linked Jerry Cooney with Rocky Balboa, right? These two white fighters, one real and one fictional, they were on the cover of Time Magazine just two weeks before the fight. Two great white hopes on the cover of Time Magazine. On the cover of Sports Illustrated, Cooney was given the honor of being on the front cover. To see the champion, Larry Holmes, you had to fold the cover out. And so even though Holmes was the champion, even though Larry Holmes was undefeated and 39-0, this fight seemed to be all about Jerry Cooney, the white challenger. Just in case the general public had missed the message of what this event was all about, The boxing promoter, Don King, a a man as subtle as his super spiked hair, Don King, he spelled it out plain. He said, this is a black and white fight. Now, to be fair, Jerry Cooney said the fight had nothing to do with race, but the fight promoters, they talked about race every chance they got. They used race to drum up controversy, drum up interest. Larry Holmes got so tired of all this great white hope talk, he snapped at a press conference and he called Jerry Cooney the great white hoax. The fight took place in Las Vegas on June 11th, 1982, in front of 32,000 spectators and millions more watching on pay-per-view. And here are some very interesting facts from that night. Very interesting fact number one, Tensions before this fight were so high that the Las Vegas Police Department, they ringed the roof of the arena with snipers. White supremacist groups had announced that they would shoot Larry Holmes if he won the fight. Black militant organizations, they said they would be armed and in attendance in case Larry Holmes was attacked. Oh boy. Very interesting fact number two. Jerry Cooney's dressing room had been equipped with an outside phone line so he could receive a call from President Ronald Reagan if he won. There was no such phone line put in the dressing room of Larry Holmes. Think about that. The president wanted to congratulate the white fighter if he won. He had no interest in congratulating the black fighter. Very interesting fact number three. Once both fighters were in the ring, The ring announcer introduced Larry Holmes, the champion, first. Now, hold on. It is a boxing tradition that the champion be introduced second. The champ is always introduced last. But for some reason, on this night, Jerry Cooney was given that honor. I cannot remember this happening before that fight or since. Cooney received a much louder ovation. It was definitely a pro-Cooney crowd. The two fighters came together for their instructions. And when the referee was done speaking, they touched gloves. And Larry Holmes, despite all the racial stuff swirling around this bout, he said, let's have a good fight. I was watching this fight. I remember hearing him say that. And that's the precise moment that I became a Larry Holmes fan. And I think I need to make myself a character in this story for a second. A a character in American history, I suppose. This fight took place in June of 1982 and it was one week before my 14th birthday. I had been born in Oakland, California, but now my family, we were living in the Bay Area suburbs, which back then were almost entirely white suburbs. Like I said, I was 13 going on 14. It was an age where I desperately wanted to fit in. I wanted to be part of a pack, you know, I wanted to belong. And I was reading about this fight. I was a sports nut as a kid. I read every single word of every single Sports Illustrated magazine, and then I tore off the cover and I taped it to my bedroom walls, and then the ceiling. You know, Friends who knew me back then but I lost contact with, people I have reconnected with on Facebook, for example, when they find out my job is talking about sports, they all laugh and they say, of course it is. So I was paying attention to the buildup to this fight and my 14th birthday was a week away. And so I begged my parents to let me have friends over. Please pay for the fight so we can all watch it. Like I said, the town I was living in, it was almost all white. All my friends at my birthday party, every one of them, white. And I was reading that white Americans were rooting for Jerry Cooney and black Americans were rooting for Larry Holmes. And I am here to tell you right now that I bought it. I bought into it. Malcolm X would say that I had been bamboozled, that I had been convinced that a Jerry Cooney victory was somehow meaningful to me as a white American, which of course makes no sense. But in the lead up to that fight, I did not have the vision or the intellect or the courage to see through the bullshit. Look, I was 13 years old. My my economic status was not sliding. I did not feel myself the victim of forces beyond my control. I got caught up in the vortex. I I got swept away by that shallow but powerful current of white racial identity. And then I read about that phone line that only connected Ronald Reagan with Jerry Cooney and that didn't seem right. And then Jerry Cooney was introduced last. Wait a minute. And then despite it all, Larry Holmes looked squarely at Jerry Cooney and said, let's have a good fight. And looking back at it, I think that was the precise moment that I began, that just began to think about sports differently. Let's go back to the bout. Larry Holmes said, let's have a good fight. And it was a good fight. Uh, Holmes knocked Cooney down in the second round with a quick one-two combination of jab-cross. But Cooney made it out of that round and he fought what many considered to be the best fight of his career. In between the middle rounds to inspire his fighter, Jerry Cooney's trainer shouted at him, America needs you. I suppose that's very interesting fact number four, because what I think he was really saying was, white America needs you. In the end, Larry Holmes, he was too good. Larry Holmes was both a skilled boxer and a slugger. Cooney, it turned out, was really just a slugger. And by the 12th round, Jerry Cooney, he was so tired, he had trouble keeping his punches up, and he hit Larry Holmes square in the groin on two different occasions. Like twice, Larry Holmes doubled over in pain, and points were deducted from Cooney's score. I will never forget it. After one of these punches, there was a break in the action so Larry Holmes could recover, and his trainer reached into Holmes's shorts, and with two hands, Vigorously massaged his fighter's genitals. I tell you, watching that scene on TV, I became a man that night. Finally, in the 13th round, Holmes knocked Cooney down again. Cooney stumbled to his feet, dazed and confused, and his trainers, they threw in the towel. They stopped the fight. Larry Holmes was the winner and still champion. Look. Jerry Cooney was a decent fighter. He wasn't a hoax. But take it from 13 going on 14-year-old Matt. So much of the attention and support that came his way, it was due to hope and hype. White hope and white hype. That was pretty much the end of Jerry Cooney as a meaningful fighter. You know, this great white hope was discarded and forgotten. Larry Holmes? Well, he kept fighting, and he kept winning. Three years later, Larry Holmes was 48-0. and He was one win away from tying Rocky Marciano's all-time unbeaten record of 49 wins with no losses. And once again, the ghost of Rocky Marciano was invoked. Sports writers, white sports writers, they dusted off Marciano's memory and they said, yeah, well, Larry Holmes could never have beaten the great Rocky Marciano. I mean, there's that same old line. In 1985, Larry Holmes entered the ring with hopes of tying Marciano's record. But in his 49th professional fight, Larry Holmes was upset by Michael Spinks. 48 and 1. When he walked into the press room after losing this fight, Larry Holmes, he could sense the smug satisfaction, the the glee coming from many of the reporters. And one of the first questions he was asked about was about not living up to Rocky Marciano's legacy. And a bitter Larry Holmes, he looked at the reporters and he said, Rocky Marciano couldn't carry my jockstrap. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. Head to head in their primes, I'll take Larry Holmes in that matchup, but I don't know for sure. But I do know this, Larry Holmes was sick and tired of all that great white hope talk. Larry Holmes was sick and tired of climbing into the ring and fighting not only his opponent that day, but fighting all those mythical white heroes from America's past. But in the 1980s, this was American Sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios, executive produced by Katie Rohn, co-produced by Casey Helmick, and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.